Hello, everybody. My name is Luke Marshall, and you are listening to the Things Observed podcast. And we are here with the next installment in the Auto Scorzini series. So, in order to try and do just a little bit of a recap, we've covered so much. In our first episode, we talked about Scorzini during the Nazi years, and then we went to go on and talk about his escape, or rather, his letting being let out of being held. Uh, not for war crimes, even though that would have been appropriate. But anyhow, then after that, we talked about how there was all these kind of different intelligence connections that he had at Camp King, and how it was most likely this faction of intelligence people who were involved with, you know, the Nazis during this period, who were responsible for Skorzeny being let out of holding and then how he would go on to do all this different work for western intelligence agencies with the cia with french intelligence and the compass rose operations of which scorzini was intimately involved and we'll go into that a little bit today as well um you know just kind of like a proto gladio stay behind network kind of thing in order to fight the communist in europe and on and on the story goes. We've covered a lot, and we're going to cover a lot in today's episode as well. And I said that I was going to try and wrap everything up in this podcast, but that may just not, unfortunately, be the case. It is looking like there might be a little bit more to cover after this episode, but this should be the second to the last in this series. And I've got another interview lined up, so that will be exciting for both me and for the rest of you guys. It is going to be an episode that is especially important if you are a parent with your kid in the education system. So look out for that. That's going to be a good episode. And sorry for not putting out an episode last week. It was Holy Week for me, and so I was spending a lot of time at church, and I also had a lot of obligations outside of church, and I could just not find the time to make an episode work out because sometimes these episodes can take just a little bit of time getting all my notes together and doing the research in order to be prepared for an episode. So I just couldn't make it happen this last week, but I am here today and we are going to have many good episodes in the future. Hopefully you guys aren't all scorzinied out yet because as I said, you know, we're going to have this episode and one more episode about Otto Scorzini after this where we will kind of wrap up the rest of his life and it might be a little bit of a time period before we get to it. I am going to talk about Scorzini as he relates to the JFK assassination and some other people who kind of factor into this specific theory of the JFK assassination as put forward by people like H.P. Alborelli Jr. and Ralph Gannis, who is the author of the Scorzini Papers. He's also the one who would buy the actual Scorzini Papers at an auction, and he has been someone who we've been using heavily as a source in these Scorzini episodes, along with some other people. H.P. Alborelli Jr., another one of those people who have been continually used throughout this series but anyways we will get into that and also talk about how this relates to you know may brussels theories of the jfk assassination but we might just take a little bit of a pause after this next couple episodes on scorzini on the topic 
just so that way we can dive into some other good topics. And as I said, I have another interview scheduled, so that'll be good. It is not Scorzini related, but it is nonetheless very interesting. So anyhow, we have some big plans for the Thing Observer Nation. I couldn't figure out even what it was that I was going to say until I started saying it. Thing Observer Nation. Big plans. Um, you know. So anyhow, let's just go ahead and get into the next part in our deep dive into Skorzeny. And that's going to be Skorzeny and his relation to the Israeli government and the Mossad. Very interesting stuff. So I promised that we would talk about... James Angleton, and that we would talk about Skorzenian in Israel. So that's exactly what we are going to do. And I don't think I need to tell most of my audience who Angleton is, you know, so for the sake of time, we'll just talk about how he relates to Skorzeny. And um, given what Skorzeny was doing, you know, for the CIA and other groups, and we know the CIA was, at least during some periods, keeping tabs on Skorzeny, it makes sense that the CIS, or the counterintelligence staff in the CIA, would have kept watch on Skorzeny. And we know that the counterintelligence staff was indeed aware of Skorzeny back since, you know, the William Harvey days in 1948. And so, you know, we know, I mean, we've talked about it just kind of, you know, incessantly throughout this series that Skorzeny was involved with Western intelligence agencies. And we also know that people like James Angleton were definitely in the position to know of Skorzeny. And so many of you know that Angleton served as the exclusive liaison to Israel after the creation of the Special Operations Group within the CIA. And so Angleton would make sure he was the one to run the Israel command solely, and he would do that for 20 years, which is in in one way, along with some other things, helped him secure his kind of dominance in counterintelligence. And he ran his, you know, the exclusive liaison to Israel with an iron fist. He wasn't going to let anybody else get close to that position. And so in 1962, Angleton would become aware of an Israeli plan where Skorzeny was hired to participate in an operation to shut down Egypt's rocket program. And we talked about Skorzeny and his work for the Egyptians in the last episode. And so Skorzeny was uniquely qualified for this job, you know, since he had literally been the one to help set up Egypt's rocket program and get them all these Nazi scientists in order for them to do this. And so from the start, and given his previous work for Egypt and the fact that he had been a literal Nazi, he wasn't most likely seen as someone who would go into business with the Israelis. So it is something that is kind of a peculiar little facet of history. The fact that, you know, we have this guy who had worked with enemies of Israel who had been a Nazi, Hitler's top commando, go into business with the Israelis. But what is history if not just uh, big collections of absolutely strange and mind-boggling facts? But almost said numbing, and that's the exact opposite of what I'm trying to get across, but the idea to bring Skorzeny into the fold with the Israelis was Isser Harel's idea, and Harel was the head of the Mossad, and he would also be an Israeli politician later on in life, and uh, Harel is most likely known today for overseeing the capture of one of the Holocaust organizers, Adolf Eichmann, 
and having him brought to Israel. And it is not well known that he would help employ a Nazi in his covert operations. You know, I mean, he is most known for uh, going after the Nazis. So this is kind of just a peculiar fact about Harel. But Harel would also be the one to get the speech given by Nikita Khrushchev, um, where he, you know, Khrushchev denounces Stalin's cult of personality. Um, he would be the one, Harrell would, to get that into the hands of Western intelligence via James Angleton, you know, who was the exclusive liaison to Israel in the CIA, which was, you know, quite the treat for all these CIA guys and uh, Cold War paranoiacs who had been wanting to get their grubby little hands on this speech that they had only heard about through the grapevine. But it wasn't until Harrell, uh, you know, dropped it at their feet to like a... Um, cat would with a dead mouse to its owner um, that you know they would actually get this opportunity and Harrell would actually have to resign from the Mossad in 1963 quite a curious year after word got around about the Operation Damocles um, which is the operation involving Skorzini and so word didn't exactly get around about Skorzini per se but rather that this operation would end up utilizing assassination and mail bombing tactics among other you know things that are not very nice um, especially when it comes to light in the public uh, discourse you know and so he would kind of have to step down from his position after some of this stuff became public knowledge so Operation Damocles was you know German scientists specifically those operating out of factory 333 um, would be targeted, and I don't know, anytime I see repeating numbers, kind of just makes your mind wonder, but anyways, in order to bring Skorzeny into the fold, Rafi Eaton, um, who was this top-level Mossad agent who had been the handler of Jonathan Pollard, uh, Pollard was the U.S. intelligence analyst, um, I believe, at the uh, National Security Agency, who would sell American state secrets to these Israelis, to the Israelis, and so Eaton was Pollard's handler, and Eaton would also play a major role in the creation of Project Talpiot, which was uh, this project to, uh, you know, for all of you people who, you know, maybe are interested in gifted kids from the Jimmy Fallon Gong, uh, you know, line of thought, you know, I know it's something that he's talked a lot about, but they basically gather up these gifted kids and create a brain trust to create all this newfangled technology for the IDF and other Israeli intelligence services and what have you. And, you know, this rabbit hole about uh, Operation Talpiot uh, goes much deeper than what I just said, but we'll just leave it at that. But Eaton would also serve as the head as the Lakim Intelligence Agency in Israel, which is now defunct, but he would become involved in all the Promise funny business. And, uh, you know, Promise is the software with a backdoor that involves Robert Maxwell and all of that. I'll just go ahead and read a little bit from a Whitney Webb article where she writes about Eaton and promise and uh, you can also learn more about this in the second volume of one nation under blackmail by whitney webb whitney webb has talked in detail about promise and how that relates to robert maxwell there's also the book robert maxwell israel's super spy who i cannot remember off the top of my head who wrote that i'll just go ahead and give it a 
quick little Google search. Um, so that way I can inform you guys, but it has some good stuff about that. Yeah, Robert Maxwell, Israel's super spy, the life and murder of a media mogul. And it is by Gordon Thomas and Martin Dillon. So uh, that's another good read for those of you who want to, you know, learn more about that. And it's uh, also kind of a fun read because it's very narrative, if you will, you know, so it almost kind of reads like a spy novel or something. So that's another good one to check out. But Whitney Webb writes, it's in had learned a promise from Earl Bryan, a longtime associate of Ronald Reagan, who had previously worked for the CIA. Promise is often considered to be the forerunner of the PRISM software used by the U.S. and allied spy agencies today and was developed by former NSA official Bill Hamilton. Hamilton had leased the software to the U.S. Department of Justice through his company Inslaw, Inc. in 1982. Eaton and Bryan had hatched a plan to install a trap door into the software and then sell Promise throughout the world, providing Israel with invaluable intelligence on the operations of its enemies and allies, while also netting Eaton and Bryan massive profits. According to the testimony of former Israeli intelligence officer Ari ben Menashe, Bryan provided a copy of Promise to Israeli military intelligence, which contacted an Israeli-American programmer living in California. The programmer then planted a trapdoor or backdoor into the software. And so, Eaton would enlist Robert Maxwell to help him sell the promised software to governments and government agencies across the globe. And so that's how Maxwell kind of comes into the fold. And eventually the bugged software would end up being installed in uh, very sensitive uh, places with all kinds of government secrets, um, specifically Sandia Laboratories in the Los Alamos complex which is pivotal in the you know, U.S. nuclear weapons program. And once again, as Whitney Webb says, Israel's acquisition of nuclear weapons seen in the light of the Promise scandal and the Pollard spy affair shows that it was largely accomplished through trickery, deception, and espionage rather than Israeli technical or scientific prowess. But anyways, Sandia Laboratories, um, isn't that where Walter Breen, because we were just talking about gifted kids a second ago, isn't that where, like, Walter Breen or one of those guys who Jimmy talks about in um, that uh, episode uh, went to work? I, I can't even remember. But anyways, um, anyhow, that's a that's a big rabbit hole. But the point is, is that Israel would send one of their cop guys in order to bring Skorzeny into the fold. And so not only would Skorzeny agree to help, but he would actually offer his services pro bono, <laughs> which brings us to the question... Was Scorzini a Zionist? I'm kind of joking, but uh, who knows? Crazier things have happened before, and, you know, given the fact that Israel is, you know, kind of an ethno-state, um, there has already been this weird alliance in history between, you know, people who are on the uh, far racist right, you know, and uh, Zionist, you know, um, the, sometimes they have more in common than you would necessarily think at first glance. But anyhow, um, you know, crazier things exist than the possibility that a man like Skorzeny and a man like Eaton could have bond over, you know, possible beliefs in an ethnostate 
although that is speculation. But anyways, Israel sends over one of their top guys, this Ralphie Eaton, to enlist Skorzeny into this Operation Damocles nonsense. And so, anyhow, let's just get into a specific example of how Damocles functioned. So, on September 11th, 1962, German scientist Heinz Krug would visit his office but he would never make it home that night. Krug, as one of his, uh, the Nazis that had been employed in the Egyptian rocket program, um, you know, he was uh, leading up to his disappearance. Some of the Germans working for Israel would receive intimidating phone calls in the middle of the night telling them to abandon their work. Others would receive mail bombs that would injure several people aside from them. And, you know, these notes and phone calls were getting to Krug, and he knew that it was the Israelis who were the source of these threats, especially considering that Adolf Eichmann had only been captured and hanged a couple years earlier by the Israelis, who would find him all the way out in that Nazi safe haven that is Argentina, and he would be brought back to Jerusalem, where he would meet the hangman on May 33rd only a few months before Krug himself went missing. And so Krug was at the top of the hit list, and he would actually work underneath Werner von Braun on a military range on the coast of the Baltic Sea during the Second World War. And Braun would even brag that this work would help create the missiles that would leave behind such a heavy toll in England, you know, during those um, bombings. And it was at the range on the coast of the Baltic that the team which Krug belonged to would work to build bigger, better, and more efficient weapons. And so Krug would actually be invited to America by von Braun, but instead of, you know, deciding to go the Operation Paperclip route, he would opt instead to work on the Egyptian missile program, you know. So perhaps he would come to wish later on that he had taken Von Braun's offer after he met, um, he would meet his fate. But however, the Emissary of Death for Krug would not be an Israeli. No, it would not be an Israeli at all, but it would actually be someone who had been on the same team during the Second World War. The man who would fire the fatal gunshot to Krug would be none other than the Nazi, the Nazi commando Otto Skorzeny. So as the Israeli publication Haaretz or Haaretz um, would say, Otto Skorzeny, one of, Israel, one of the Israeli spy agency's most valuable assets, was a former lieutenant colonel in Nazi Germany's Waffen-SS and one of Adolf Hitler's personal favorites among commando leaders. And Haaretz would report that it was Skorzeny who would kill Krug as part of this espionage plot known as Operation Damocles, and this is based off the t testimony of former Mossad officers and Israelis with access to the Mossad archive. So how exactly did this come to transpire? Well, a desperate Krug would actually turn to the then 54-year-old Skorzeny, who had helped, you know, save Mussolini and been awarded for his help, um, you know, in doing so and was this, you know, top-level Nazi commander. So Krug would turn to Skorzeny and Haaretz again says, Krug contacted Skorzeny in the hope that the great hero then living in Spain could create a strategy to keep the scientists safe. 
The two men were in Krug's white Mercedes driving north out of Munich, and Skorzeny said that as a first step he had arranged for three bodyguards. He said they were in a car directly behind and would accompany them to a safe place in a forest for a chat. Krug was murdered, then and there, without so much as a formal indictment or death sentence. The man who pulled the trigger was none other than famous Nazi war hero. Israel's espionage agency had managed to turn Otto Skorzeny into a secret agent for the Jewish state. After Krug was shot, the three Israelis poured acid on his body, waited a while, and then buried what was left in a hole they had dug beforehand. They covered the makeshift grade with lime so that the search dogs and wild animals would never pick up on the scent of human remains. And so, anyways, that's quite a colorful story. Um, I can't seem to talk very well today, so that was supposed to be a lot more uh, thematic and, you know, kind of uh, entertaining, but forgive me for that. I've recently been watching Breaking Bad, so it's kind of funny to imagine this situation where Ralph Eaton um, asked Corzini to go to the store to get a certain type of plastic container in order to dissolve the acid, and Scorzini doesn't read the labels right, and so they're having to take a, you know, Krug, and they're trying to figure out what to do with all this goo that's leaking out into the forest in order to where the dogs don't pull up any evidence later, but anyways, um, that's enough about Breaking Bad, because as of the moment, this isn't a Breaking Bad-themed podcast, but who knows, everything is subject to change at one point or another, but anyways, these three Israelis who would be a party to the disposal of evidence would be Zvi Malkin, Yosef Renan, and probably most interestingly, in my opinion, Yitzhak Shamir, who would go on to be the Prime Minister of Israel later. And so how did the Mossad and Skorzeny come to work with one another in the first place? How did it become that Skorzeny would be the trigger man for the Mossad? Why would Skorzeny agree to work with them? Again, I'll read from the Haaretz article, which everyone can find a link to in the description of this episode. Um, I'm kind of reading some of the juicier tidbits from it, so... um, Hopefully there's a little bit of juice left in it for those of you who want to go check it out, but it's an interesting article, but it says, In Israel, a Mossad planning team started to work on where it could be best to find and kill Skorzini, but the head of the agency, Isser Harel, had a bolder plan. Instead of killing him, snare him. Mossad officials had known for some time that to target the German scientists, they needed an inside man in the target group. In effect, the Mossad needed a Nazi. The Israels would never find a Nazi they could trust, but they saw a Nazi they could count on. Something thorough and determined with a record of success in executing innovative plans and skilled at keeping secrets. And so some of the men who would end up being tasked with finding Skorzeny for the Mossad were almost certainly, you know, kind of conflicted about this work. Or at the least, one would think some of them had, you know... Uh, some of these guys, I mean, had lost family members in the Holocaust, and so, you know, no matter how much Skorzeny likes to whitewash his Nazi history in his memoirs or something, you know, we're not so naive. He was definitely not as, a, you know, crystal, squeaky clean as he liked to portray himself. 
and Renan would end up assembling a team to travel to Spain where they would begin to keep tabs on Scorzini. So, you know, one can only imagine what's going through their heads while they're doing this. But, you know, maybe they thought that this was in the service of some kind of greater good. But um, they would observe Scorzini in his workplace, in his home, his day-to-day activities. You know, they're just tailing him all around. And then one of the women whom the Mossad would bring into their operation was this attractive, flirty young woman who the Heretz contact referred to as Anki. And she, uh, I don't know if I pronounced that right. But anyway, she, along with another man, they would pose as a couple and they would get in the good favor of Scorzini and Elza while the Nazi couples were out for drinks at a bar one night, you know, and they would kind of cozy up to them as part of this, you know, secret Mossad operation. And the the drinks were flowing. Everyone was flirting with one another. Um, You know, there was kind of this sexual tension in the air, I suppose, between the two couples, at least if we're to believe the Haaretz article. And the Mossad agents pretended they had no luggage passports or money after having lost them you know so it's like oh you know can you help us out and they would end up getting invited back to Scorzini's villa and so now I will return to the Haaretz article a sense of sexual intimacy between the two couples was in the air after the four entered the house however at a crucial moment when the playful flirting reached the point where it seemed to pair off Scorzini, the charming host, pulled a gun on the young couple and declared, I know who you are, and I know why you're here. You're Mossad, and you've come to kill me. The young couple did not even flinch. The man said, You're half right. We are from Mossad, but if we had come to kill you, you would have been dead weeks ago. Or maybe, Scorzini said, I'd rather just kill you. And Ank spoke up. If you kill us, the ones who come next won't bother to have a drink with you. You won't even see their faces before they blow out your brains. Our offer to you is just for you to help us. After a long minute that felt like an hour, Scorzini did not lower his gun, but he asked, What kind of help? You need something done? The Mossad officer, who even now is not being named by colleagues, told Scorzini that Israel needed information and would pay handsomely. Hitler's favorite commando paused for a few moments to think and then surprised the Israeli by saying, Money doesn't interest me. I have enough. Which... Man, how much money had Scorzini made doing all of this work for Western intelligence? One can only wonder, you know, what his motive would be in turning down the money. But, you know, Scorzini's basically only request was that he was removed from the Nazi hunter um, Weisenthal's list. And so Renan would become Scorzini's handler in all of this and have the Scarface Commando flown out to Tel Aviv. And apparently Scorzini would be taken to the Yad Vashem Holocaust Museum, um, which, um, you know, one can, uh, I don't know, I don't even know if it is comical or if I'm just messed up in the head, but there's something a little bit funny about thinking about Scorzini's big, bumbling German ass walking around through the Holocaust Museum, Um, but at, uh, he would also be introduced to Isser Harel. And eventually, Scorzini would partially be the um, task of 
Ralphie Eaton, who helped out the Israeli nuclear program and was involved with all the promise stuff, as we mentioned earlier, you know, bugging Sandia Laboratory, stolen secrets, Jonathan Pollard, all that stuff. And he would admit that he had met and ran Skorzeny, you know, met and ran being um, a quote. And so Israeli agents would try and convince Weisenthal to remove Skorzeny's name from the list of, you know, Nazis to be bagged and brought to Jerusalem for the hangman. But he refused, and they opted instead to forge a letter from Weisenthal to Skorzeny. But anyways, Skorzeny would, in Egypt, ship a mail bomb that would kill five Egyptians that were working at the 333 site. And eventually, David Ben-Gurion, would, um, you know, who was a big-time Israeli politician involved in all this kind of nonsense, um, but he would end up terminating the prog- program and... Uh, demand the resignation of Isser Harrell over the whole matter, but perhaps that was just to save face in the public eye. That's kind of the way that it seems to me, at least. But who's to say? And that wouldn't be the last time that Israel would attempt to use Otto Skorzeny in order to further their own agenda. Later on, the Israelis would once again tap Skorzeny to try and set up a peace negotiation with an Egyptian official and Israel, but that would fall through and there would be no peace in the Middle East. And so one can, you know, only wonder what motivated Skorzeny to work alongside Israel. I mean, perhaps it was just clearing his name, getting it off the Weisenthal list. Um, you know, hope maybe it was just hoping that the Israelis would not kill him if he participated didn't get greedy and ask for money or whatever. Uh, you know, maybe Skorzeny had a heart somewhere deep down. I wouldn't count on it, but maybe he was, you know, trying to right the wrong of being a Nazi by helping the Zionist or something. <laughs> Who knows? Or maybe it was just a good old-fashioned spot adventure, which, you know, Skorzeny loved perhaps more than anything. Who's to say? But perhaps the most curious thing of all of this is that Renan, who would, you know, serve as kind of Skorzeny's commander, he would visit Skorzeny's funeral of seemingly his own volition after he died, just go pay his respects to Skorzeny or something like that. I mean, maybe there is something more to that story that I'm just unfamiliar with and that he was there on some sort of business. But I mean, it seems, you know, at least like he just went of his own volition. So anyhow, that is the story of Hitler's favorite commando, murdering, mail bombing, and using his espionage skills for the Jewish state of Israel. So quite the interesting, you know, little uh, tidbit of history. So anyhow, you know, we got into this discussion of Skorzeny and his work for the Mossad via Angleton. So let's just go ahead and highlight a few more things in the Angleton sphere as it pertains to Skorzeny. So Skorzeny would have the name of Newton Miller on his distribution list, and Miller was a close associate of Angleton's, and he was the deputy chief of the Special Investigations Unit, which Angleton had created, and the group was incredibly secretive, with many in the CIA not even knowing of the existence of this group. And it was created with the purpose of discovering any Soviet penetration inside the CIA. And Skorzeny was already, you know, known to others inside the special investigations group, such as Jane and Raymond Roman and Gannis, um, Ralph Gannis, the author of the Skorzeny papers, would summarize this as follows. 
In the end, Skorzeny emerges as a clear asset of Angleton's counterintelligence staff, shared with the equally secretive offices of Frank Wisner and William K. Harvey. These men had close personal relationships and contact with Skorzeny, seemed to have been restricted to this very tight inner circle of CIA executive officers and selected staff. Use of Skorzeny appears to have been entirely unknown to the rank and file of the CIA. Under normal lines of authority, Angleton would have been reported to the deputy director for plans, then to a director, but it has been reported that Angleton was unhindered by the normal chain of command. His authority was such that he developed an unshakable power within the CIA. With Angleton at the helm, the CIS would become undeniably the most powerful office within the CIA. And so now... Let's go ahead and get into the next part of the Scorzini saga, aside from the James Angleton Israel Operation Damocles, you know, part of the story. And let's get into Scorzini's school of commando tactics. She'll be there for a while For the wounding of a rental car And a ram right in sunshine She's right there on CCTV Forgetting to take her medication But then Ruby says a laurel kit The best dealer they can make her. Oh, but then I grew up around her family and they were such a bunch of losers They could only do each other Oh, they see a back of cruises And she could say anything At any time So any mention of plea bargains Is making everybody feel uptight Left my ties down. You left my ties down. You see, I'd give you anything at any time. But you left my ties down. a car up from the depot I had my lunch at China Rose And then I snorted half a gram of Australia's finest homemade coke And a child was mauled by bullets outside the High Point shopping center While a two-rack tractor benefact bit down on our placenta And I know it's raining in Victoria So that shit's under control You left my ties down You left my ties 
Well, we've already discussed Scorzini's connections to French intelligence and the Compass Rose Stay Behind networks, and perhaps it would have made more sense of me to talk about this earlier on when discussing the Compass Rose network, but I've been using the Gannis book to kind of help me outline uh, the direction that this series is going to go, and I'm just kind of taking other sources um, in order to help you know, boost the claims in Gannis's work and stuff like that. So perhaps it would have made more sense for me to uh, talk about this earlier, but, um, you know, this kind of appears later on in the Gannis book, referring back on to stuff. And so I kind of forgot to um, get to this, you know, until later on when I was, you know, outlining my own podcast. But anyways, that's enough about discussing, you know, my creative process, which is not that interesting. So let's go ahead and discuss, uh, man can't talk let's go ahead and discuss something that actually is interesting so when we discussed compass rose we talked about what gannis refers to as the spg or the special paramilitary group which was heavily involved in the compass rose shenanigans you know the world commerce corporation william stevenson and william donovan you know the two bills if you will and a couple years after Scorzini became involved with French intelligence, which was in 1949, it appears as if the SPG was disbanded. And this is when Scorzini would come in and help to train and advise the Compass Rose efforts and, you know, train up these commandos to fight in the Cold War and advise the Compass Rose efforts 
train up commandos to fight. Um, so the group of commandos that he was training would be assumed into the Clandestine Planning Committee, or CPC, which was placed under the U.S. Military Assistance Advisory Group, or MAAG. I'm going to refer to it as MAG. Um, so gotta love all these acronyms. It's almost like they're trying to make things uh, difficult to understand and pin down to any one group. But anyhow, MAG would help train foreign countries in various techniques to help them use the weapons and equipment that the good old USA was throwing at them faster than they could catch. And, you know, it was Skorzeny and his close associates who would be brought in to help facilitate this training. Because, you know, what good is a bunch of weapons in tech if the people do not know how to use it. So, Gannis writes, Specifically, MAG interacted with Skorzeny at the paramilitary commando training camps set up in Spain and other locations. A retired U.S. Army Special Forces officer, Lieutenant Colonel Anthony Herbert, who attended several of these training camps in 1960, referred to them collectively as Skorzeny's School of Commando Tactics. Skorzeny's connections to MAG is a vital component in his clandestine relationship to the United States. Authorization for MAG to interact with Skorzeny came from the highest levels of the U.S. government. Other countries also knew of these camps, including France, Great Britain, and, of course, Spain. Skorzeny would continue to be associated with MAG well into the early 1970s. So, perhaps while it would have made sense to talk about um, you know, Mag and his school of uh, commando tactics a little bit earlier, we will also see that this is something that will carry on much later into the Scorzini story. So, you know, perhaps it does make sense to talk about it now. But anyways, you know, despite Franco um, being a fascist dictator, the U.S. would become heavily involved with Spain shortly after the conclusion of the Cold War you know, finding the Nazi collaborators who fought against the USSR to somehow be more preferable than those pesky pinkos who were just a little bit further east. But, I mean, is any of this really surprising to anybody? Certainly not to listeners of my podcast, because, I mean, considering that the whole series revolves around Hitler's top commando being a prominent intelligence agency asset, uh, you know, Who's surprised? But this push to make Spain a Western ally was largely headed by, you know, Cold War paranoids among the upper military brass, and this eventually would give way to the environment in which MAG would be born, and this, you know, environment would end up, you know, having Skorzeny being enmeshed in it, you know, all the way up to the decades um, that would follow, you know, up to the decade of cocaine and boogie music, you know, I mean, it, it was a long-standing thing, but the creation of MAG would be in response to USA to the country, because, you know, as stated earlier, what good is weapons and equipments being given to the Spaniards if they are clueless as to how to use it, so like any good program, embedded in the MAG structure were CIA agents, and they would, in the words of Gannis, handle the political considerations of training. So part of how we know that Scorzini was involved with MAG is through the Scorzini papers, which I stated earlier, you know, Gannis had secured these at auction, and this is where much of the, you know, documentation and proof for uh, 
everything that he writes about in his book comes from. And he says that he's going to try and get those, you know, archived at a public facility before long. So that way people can peruse them and find out more for themselves. So that will be a boon for researchers at some point in the future. But anyways, in the Scorzini papers, which Gannis had acquired, um, were contracts for the ECA, the Economic Cooperation Agency, which was what else but a CIA front. Um, and Scorzini would work through the ECA in order to help, you know, resist the communist threat in Europe. And so eventually the ECA would undergo a name change to the International Cooperation Administration or the ICA. And, you know, it, there's other people who've talked about it. One of these people who've talked about it underneath when it was under the name of the ICA was someone who's a legend in parapolitical circles, L. Fletcher Prouty, who... I've mentioned Prouty before. Um, I know that I mentioned him in the episode that I did on Edward Lansdale. I believe that was the third entry in the Blood and Gold series where we talk a little bit about Edward Lansdale and his connection to the, you know, taking the Golden Lily Axis power loot and turning it into a black budget for the CIA and other agencies. And we also just talked about Lansdale in general, about his relationship to stuff that was going on in Vietnam and, you know, citing the Phoenix program by Douglas Valentine and some other stuff. So I know that I talked about Prouty then, and I believe that I maybe also mentioned L. Fletcher Prouty in the abiotic oil episode, which Prouty was a proponent of the abiotic oil theory. So um, L. Fletcher Prouty's a very interesting guy, and so anyways, he would say, in some countries, encouragement and perhaps minor technical assistance to recipient governments may suffice. In others, direct military assistance may have been more appropriate, while elsewhere the answer may lie in CIA programs under MAG supervision. And so, you know, L. Fletcher Prouty, you know, is just kind of talking about how this, you know, direct military assistance would sometimes be carried out indirectly through a, you know, through MAG, um, but eventually, you know, anyhow, to move on, eventually the construction of bases in, bases, excuse me, in Spain under the auspices of the Air Force would begin, and this would all be under the MAG group, and secret training sites would also be created here in Spain, and at these secret bases where this training was being carried out cia men who were sheep dipped as military advisors would train men in the art of clandestine operations and so these mag groups that were being set up would be managed by yet another acronym um the isa or the office of international security affairs don't feel bad if you can't keep up with all the acronyms i'm not even sure if i'm keeping up with all the acronyms you know and this is all you know relates back to plausible deniability and you know outsourcing things and all that stuff and just making the you know trail hard for people to figure out what the heck it is that is going on so essentially the isa would work with both the pentagon and the cia in overseeing these mag groups kind of serving as like a liaison group coordinating things between the cia and the pentagon and in 1954 the head of the isa would be a man by the name of h struve hensel 
And Hensel would work for a period of time at the same law firm of Frank Weisner, you know, the Mad Hatter of the CIA, before he started um, the Office of Policy Coordination, which was, you know, something that, you know, not only Weisner would be involved in, but we've talked about the OPC in relation to Scorzini, but Later on, Hensel would be recruited by Frank Weisner to work for the OPC and would head the radio operations of the CIA front, the National Committee of a Free Europe. And if you ever hear the Committee of a Free inside the name of an organization, you can almost bet your bottom dollar that it is a CIA front group and not to be trusted. But anyways, the National Committee of a Free Europe was headed by the right-hand man of Henry Luce of Time Magazine, that right-hand man being C.D. Jackson. And C.D. Jackson is interesting, and Gannis points out about him, he writes, A curious activity connected to C.D. Jackson and of importance to the subject of this book was Jackson's spontaneous acquisition of the famous Zapruder film for Time Life, taken on November 22, 1963 by Abraham Zapruder's home movie camera, recording the assassination of President Kennedy. Jackson's held onto the film. The film was reviewed by the Warren Commission, but there were frames missing. Subsequently, in early 1967, Life released a statement that four frames, 208 through 211, had been accidentally destroyed and adjacent frames damaged by a lab technician on November 23, 1963. Which, you think that if you were holding on to the film of the president being assassinated, you know... Um, and, you know, some of the most important evidence and one of the most important events in all of American history up to that point, you think that you would try to, you know, make sure that your lab technicians don't damage it. But hey, what do I know? But the reason that I even mentioned Hensel, aside from, you know, his connection to Wisner and to the man behind the seeming obfuscation of, you know, this evidence of JFK's assassination, is that he would become a German steel lobbyist and represent the firm of this guy, Otto Wolf, of which none other than Otto Skorzeny was a representative of, and Hensel's name appears in the Skorzeny papers in relation to business transaction with Otto Wolf. So this is just, you know, yet another one of the numerous connections to Skorzeny that not only has ties to intelligence and Western intelligence agencies like the CIA, but also to people involved with intelligence that can also be found to have some sort of connection that's only a stone's throw away from the events that took place in regards to what happened in Dallas on November 22nd of 1963. Strange. Very, very strange to say the very least. And, you know, maybe one or two or even three of these connections could be uh, chalked up to happenstance or, you know, you have somebody who's so involved in the intelligence community, they're probably at some point going to know someone who has some sort of weird connection to what was going on in Dallas. But when you have, you know, I mean, at this point, we've maybe, what, covered 
a dozen people. We, you know, covered the, you know, interesting stuff in relation to Mary Pinochet Meyer. We talked about Victor Oswald. We've talked about this. We've talked about the guy who's related to, you know, um, the, the judge who had the connections to the JFK assassination stuff and who um, would help Scorzini get out. I can't, his, his name slips my memory at this point. Um, you know, I mean, we just have tons of people. We have the guy whose brother was the mayor of Dallas, you know, and who would be the one to inv actually invite Kennedy to Dallas. So, I mean, we could go on and on and on, but just another one of these weird connections. So, who were, anyway, so who were some of the people who would be involved with Scorzini in training up, you know, people to fight against the communists in Europe as part of this, you know, contingency war planning, compass rose, stay behind network stuff that's all, you know, tied into commandos, um, Scorzini's school of commando tactics. Well, I mean, there in, in the Scorzini school of commando tactics, there would be sniper units that would be proposed by Scorzini to the Pentagon through um, his Air Force military attache, who um, I believe we mentioned earlier in the series, uh, his name was Bob Beek or Beck, something like that. And uh, then there was the, you know, CIA man Arnold Silver said that the Pentagon rejected these proposals by Scorzini, but uh, Gannis, and he supports this with some evidence from the Scorzini papers, believes that at the very least, you know, the subcomponents of this plan proposed by Scorzini were put into place. In addition to this, there was, you know, they were training special forces, and there was also the formation of intelligence and communication units that people actually helping Scorzini rear these men would be um, none other than some of Otto's German compatriots. So, yep, the, who was involved with Scorzini's school of commando tactics? Well, we've got other very, very sus Germans. Uh, Colonel Theodore Metaxas, who Scorzini was assigned to at Scorzini's um, initial arrival at Camp King, which we covered earlier in the series, would go on to become involved with the 505th Infantry. And one of these men who would work um, with him in the 505th would be Anthony Herbert, a first lieutenant in his memoir titled Soldier. He would mention Scorzini by name after, um, and you know, this comes after he would create a ranger unit that was inside the 505th detachment. So let's see what Herbert has to say. There's this ranger unit created inside the 505th detachment, and he starts to hear about Scorzini. So this ranger unit would travel to France and train alongside the French foreign legionnaires, um, where he learned that the French were training with Otto Scorzini, uh, you know, which is not a big surprise given how much we've talked about Compass Rose throughout this series. But Herbert would say that training was conducted by a group of German soldiers and that they formed a corporation whose service was arming and training groups of guerrillas. And Herbert would eventually meet with Scorzini in the Basque region of Spain. And it was here that Herbert's rangers would be trained by Scorzini and Scorzini wasn't always present, which, you know, Herbert knew that Scorzini was involved in the training of other units. So, you know, it made sense that sometimes he was too busy to attend these certain training sessions. And, you know, we will talk about some of these other um, things that he may have been involved with training up people in. But, you know, one can only wonder uh, how many units Scorzini was training and where all these units were located and stuff. But something Herbert would say also seems to indicate that Scorzini's services 
in this case, you know, I guess in the case of Israel, it does seem to have came free of charge, but in this case it didn't, and Herbert would say, if you wanted to know how to blow up a bridge without blowing up yourself, Skorzeny could teach you. Whatever you thought you needed to know about an underground war, Otto was your man, for a price. Which, you know, Herbert would say other things that made it seem as if he was not as impressed with Skorzeny as others when it came to, uh, you know, Skorzeny's school of commando tactics. I mean, he would say that much of what he had learned with Skorzeny, he had already learned as a U.S. Ranger. But he did say that Skorzeny knew a good deal when it came to demolition, demolition and arson. So I guess you could say that those were Skorzeny's uh, fields of expertise. Some men just want to watch the world burn. Um, Joker Skorzeny quite the scary thought, but anyhow, it seems as if Skorzeny's work in this regard was happening on a contractual basis with the U.S., you know, hence the for a price. Um, so let's turn our attention to that group of German soldiers who had formed this, you know, corporation that was providing the ever-lovely service of, you know, arming and training anti-communist guerrilla groups throughout Europe, um, and eventually other places, as we will see. Well, Gannis gives us some insight as to who some of these men could have possibly been when he wrote, Lieutenant Herbert had mentioned he was trained by Skorzeny's men, a small group of German soldiers. Who were these men? For clear evidence, we can turn to the Scorzini papers, indicating Scorzini was still in contact with some of the best and most experienced soldiers of his old wartime commandos. This included his trusted adjunct, Karl Rad, Major Otto Begas, and others, including members of the assassination unit SS Sodenkermando, Denmark, or the Peter Group. In particularly, there is Horst Issel, the group's commander. The Peter Group had operated in Denmark in concert with Danish collaborators where it conducted clearing murders, pinpointing specific Danes for assassination in order to wipe out the Danish resistance. So it seems as if it's very possible that some of the people who were brought in to help with this training was people from the Peter Group. And the Peter Group, it was initially headed by this guy named Otto Schwert, who was one of Skorzeny's top officers, and it had participated in the uh, he participated in the Mussolini raid along Skorzeny, and he would go by the alias Peter Schaefer, um, which is where the group, you know, the Peter group got its name from, from this alias Peter Schaefer, referring to Otto Schwartz, and Schwartz would be the one um, would later be replaced by Horst Issel, who would eventually be recruited into the Gellin organization. And Skorzeny would seem, it seems, um, if I understand what Gannis said properly, be in contact or presumably be in contact with, you know, Skorzeny and Issel would be in contact with one another. And this was after Issel had been arrested by the British, but he would then be released with the help of some CIA buddies behind the scenes. Um, you know, because they would basically go to the British and go, you know, listen, this guy is working with us now, so bug off. Um, and, you know, there were more members of the Peter group in contact with Skorzeny and who had also become involved in U.S. and French intelligence in training guerrilla fighters. So it seems like if, as if, you know, Skorzeny was just using all of his old 
you know, Nazi comrades in order to help train anti-communist forces in Europe and like the Western intelligence agencies um, at the very best, you could say, you know, thought that this serves some sort of greater good in order to help fight those evil pinkos. And at the worst, that they were perfectly fine and, you know, had no moral qualms with working alongside Nazis, but, you know, were possibly eager to do so, which, you know, isn't too hard to believe when one considers that. I don't know. It seems to be something that they do time and time again. But anyways, I guess it's time to cue up the Credence Clearwater Revival as our chopper hovers over the tree line, taking us to the next portion of our Scorzini deep dive, Vietnam. fortunate son so anyways Scorzini and Nam or I shouldn't say Scorzini's role in what happened in Nam because Scorzini wasn't actually in Nam at least to our knowledge so this series is already too long and a well-informed audience such as yourselves is probably already familiar with the background of French involvement in Vietnam leading up to the time period of the American invasion with, you know, the, there was the French in the South in Vietnam and Ho Chi Minh holding elections and declaring Vietnam to be free 
up north. So I'll spare all of you that history lesson and just jump into how Skorzeny was involved with all of this. So in order to defeat those pesky pinkos up north, France began to mount military operations against the Viet Minh which was exactly the start of things, which wasn't exactly the, you know, start of things turning nasty in Vietnam, but, you know, it uh, it certainly ramped up the bloodshed that would end in Napalm, Agent Orange, Phoenix program, you know, all that horrible stuff. So when the French created a rival government, CIA men began to get in the ears of those French people and suggest the f- that they form guerrilla groups to fight the communist up north. And eventually this would culminate in French commando operations. And when fighting communist and commando units are being discussed, often Otto Skorzeny follows in that conversation. So while Skorzeny was in France at the time, he almost undoubtedly had some sort of impact on what was going on in Vietnam. Gannis writes, The joint French-U.S. MAG operations established secret weapons and ammunition caches and provided training to covert forces. General Pierre de Bonneville and Captain Mike Michel de Camera were active in these covert operations. Both men were also part of the secret de Gaulle intelligence service, the Service d'Ordre du RPF, one of the units that received training from Scorzini starting in 1949 and continuing for many years was the 11th Shock Parachute Regiment, a covert unit operating in concert with the Action Service of the French External Intelligence Agency, or SDECE. Officers and NCs from the SDECE's 11th Shock Battalion were also ordered to Vietnam to carry out training with new unconventional warfare units engaged in assassination. Soldiers from the 11th Shock attended Scorzini's training sites in France and Spain. There, he and his men taught sabotage, demolitions, and other unconventional warfare skills. Scorzini also became acquainted with many other French officers and NCOs from the French Foreign Legion, who also trained at these camps. It was through the paramilitary training and intelligence works that Scorzini provided to the French military that his close personal friendships with them would develop. At this point in history, a large percentage of the French Legion was comprised of Germans. One estimate placed the number as high as 45 to 50 percent in 1954, and still over 30 percent by 1962. Quite a few within this group were former soldiers of the Third Reich, including some who had served with Otto Scorzini. So, we got the Nazis and Nam. Um, and so before we move entirely away from this whole Vietnam Nam angle, another thing to note is that some of the men who would work with Lansdale in Vietnam, um, which, you know, as I mentioned, you can learn a little bit about that in my episode on Edward Lansdale, or to get a much better depth about, um, you know, Lansdale and his role in Vietnam and just Vietnam in general, check out the essential book, The Phoenix Program by Douglas Valentine. And I mean, you know, I mean, we basically got domestic Phoenix stuff going on in in America today. You just got to check it out. You got to check out The Phoenix Program. It's must reading for any parapolitical researcher. But anyways, I was getting off track. So some of the men who would work with Lansdale in Vietnam would also be men who were connected to Otto Skorzeny, and one of these men was Lucian Conan, who Gannis points out has a history with Skorzeny that stretches back to Camp King, where Conan was involved with the document disposal unit 
and Lucian would also work with William Harvey in Germany from 1949 to 1953, and all of this makes him very likely to be informed about Scorzini and who he was and what he was up to concerning America and French intelligence and Compass Rose and all of that stuff. So it was after all this that he would go to Vietnam to work with the King of Vampire Psyops, Edward Lansdale. And uh, two other officers who would be involved with MAG antics in Vietnam were Brigadier General Earl Berquist and Lieutenant Colonel Charles Askins, who both were involved with Scorzini in Madrid. And Berquist would be involved with overseeing military training in South Vietnam as well. So Askins would work alongside Berquist in this training in regards to airborne ops and marksmanship. So... Another person who had worked with Scorzini before his time in Vietnam was French officer Michel de Cameret, and as Gannis points out, it is quite the coincidence, you know, that we have four different men who arrive in Vietnam who all had just so happened to previously work with Scorzini, or at least most likely had worked alongside Scorzini. So anyways, um, Scorzini's impact could be felt in Vietnam to, um, you know, say the least. But anyhow, let's move on to Scorzini's role when it comes to the conflict that took place in Algeria. And then after that, we will wrap up this episode. So just a little bit more. Bear with me. But I think that this is all interesting stuff. And I'll do my best to wrap up all this Scorzini stuff in our next installment in the Scorzini series. But anyways, let's get into these Algerian escapades. So... After the liberation movement by the Vietnamese took place in Nam against the French, um, this would lead to other people uh, seeking independence from the French in territories ruled by the French. And after the French were defeated in Dien Binh Phu, they would begin to see trouble arise for them in nor- their northern African colony, specifically with the creation of the National Liberation Front. Which, man, how many times did I say French in that last little bit? And I'm not even done saying French. Because French officers trained in guerrilla warfare who had been fighting in Vietnam were then sent off to Algeria, especially after attacks by the National Liberation Front that took place on All Saints Day had occurred. And so Scorzini's French Compass Rose friends that, you know, Roger Weibo, um, he would be involved with the Algerian conflict. So, I mean, this gives you an idea that many of the exact people who were involved with Compass Rose and who were involved against, you know, fighting the communist and guerrilla warfare in northern Vietnam were now being utilized against the National Liberation Front in Algeria. And also in Algeria, people mentioned from the formerly mentioned, you know, French intelligence group, the SDECE, and people from the 11th Shock Battalion, they would also be brought in on all the the action taking place. So Waibo would then go on to weaponize some of these men into a loose network of people who went by the name of the Red Hand. Ooh, very scary. Um, you know what? I'm going to have to put in um, the, the song Red Right Hand by uh, just by the man. You'll... You'll you'll know who he is when when you hear about hear it. But anyways, Gannis recounts you know some of this in his book and also relies on this journalist Joachim 
Justin. And so I will go ahead and read from Gannis. Justin squarely places the red hand as a creation or perhaps invention of Roger Wybo's DST. Evidence gathered by Justin indicated that the red hand grew out of the legitimate self-defense organizations of the Collins during the earliest days of the FLN terror campaign. These were groups close to Weibo that included former French soldiers and intelligence personnel who had banded together in small commando outfits and vigilance groups for the protection of Colin communities and estates. The groups began to grow and eventually developed into a countrywide self-defense network bent on revenge and reprisal. It was from the ranks of the French population in Algeria or Collins who had established paramilitary networks that Waibo would create the counter-FLN terror group, Red Hand. In fact, Justin noted Waibo's link stating that the Red Hand was the offspring of the Secret Service, emphasizing that the DST and the Red Hand are as inseparable as Siamese twins. Josen had also pointed out most astutely that despite the close relationship of the Red Hand with various French secret services, that relationships did not necessarily imply that the French government had knowledge of or approved of its actions. And I take some umbrage with saying, you know, a countrywide self-defense network. But anyways, Waibo would use Scorzini for, you know, counter-terror expertise in order to enhance the capabilities of the Red Hand. So... Essentially, it was, you know, just a terrorist group trained in guerrilla warfare and paramilitary skills, and Scorzini would be involved with helping to disrupt the flow of supplies to the FLN in Algeria, and he would actually approach the CIA about helping out with the efforts um, that he was involved in in Algeria, and none other than who else but Angleton would see some opportunity in this offer, and this would eventually lead to the CIA helping out with black propaganda to help support the ultras, which was the militants in Algeria of the red hand kind of persuasion, as well as, um, you know, Angleton wanted to do this because he saw a chance to weaken support for de Gaulle and to up support for these ultras, these, you know, kind of extremists. So then the American Committee for French in Algeria was uh, created, and they would uh, were a CIA front that assisted in this black propaganda, and this also has the added benefit, you know, of indirect CIA involvement as opposed to a more ham-fisted approach. So, some of the same former CIA guys who we've mentioned before, like Clifford Forster, who had been involved with the peace and liberty um, propaganda in Europe, you know, which was involved with all this Compass Rose BS, was involved with this new CIA cutout. But, of course, more deadly means than black propaganda would be used, and this would involve the creation of the OAS, or the Secret Army Organization. And this is, I guess, where we'll pick up on what should be the final part on auto scores any which i've been trying to get to for a long time but i haven't managed to be able to wrap all of this up quiet yet but anyways if you like this episode please leave a review on spotify or apple or any other you know podcast platform that allows you to leave reviews super helpful helps the show to get to be seen by more people makes me look more legitimate than i am when in reality i'm just a guy who reads books and who bought himself a blue yeti mic that he rambles into after making some you know limited notes on subject matter and stuff so help give me the legitimacy that i don't deserve and also if you like this share it with a friend or a family member who you might think would be interested 
And, you know, maybe it's the Scorzini series, maybe it's the Titanic episode, maybe it's about Alfred Kinsey, maybe it's one of my more recent interviews with William Ramsey about the West Memphis Three, or Johnny Vedmore about the Profumo Affair stuff, or Recluse about the World Anti-Communist League. There's so much good stuff, and stay tuned because we got more good stuff that is coming down the pipeline. I've got another interview scheduled. I don't want to uh, release who it is exactly, um, just in case you know things were to unfortunately fall through for some reason or that gets delayed for some kind of reason, but it's going to be really good. It's going to be a great talk for those of you who have children who are in the education system, and even for those of you who don't, um, and it's going to be, you know, just um, interesting um, talking to this guy anyhow, but we've got other good stuff down the pipeline. There are other people who I really want to bring on as guests. If you have any suggestions as to who I should invite onto the show, message me on Twitter at thingobserver, one word, no hyphens or underscore type crap. It is just one word, all lowercase thing observer. Let me know who I should have on the show. And also, just let me know your thoughts in general, positive, negative. If there's any subjects that you would like me to cover, if there's any guests that you would like me to have on, I'm interested to hear all of that. And there are some subjects that I really want to talk about, and I would love to find good guests who know a good deal about those subjects. So you can message me about any of that, um, any questions that you might have about the show. If you want to tell me that my voice is grating and that you're sick of hearing it and you don't know why you listen to it, whatever. I don't care. You can message me. And I think I've messaged just about everyone else who's messaged me back, you know. So anyways, you can get in contact through me there. But anyways, you guys have a blessed day. Keep it real. And that that's it, man. I love you all, and I'll talk to all of you soon.